You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. I was a first-year scout, having graduated from Cubs. I was a lot of dib, 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 dob, dob, dob. Scouting was much more mature. And we were out on a hike, and I remember a specific moment of utter disillusionment. We were lost. We'd practiced for this. We'd ironed our uniforms and showed up on weeknights. We'd uh, gone over our maps and our orienteering skills. We'd talked about what we needed to pack into our, our bags. We knew how to set up a tent. And there we were out in the bush, and I looked at my leaders, and they were clueless. They did not know where we were. And that was probably the moment where I asked myself, what am I doing here? I've chosen the wrong, the wrong career. This is, this is, you know, I don't want to be a scout anymore. I, these leaders don't know where they're going. I think I've come this far along the path, and it's probably time to turn back. Obviously, I've made a bad decision. You ever felt like that? Ever felt that you've, you've got yourself halfway along a particular path, and then all of a sudden everything goes a little bit pear-shaped, a little bit wrong, and you start questioning, am I actually on the wrong path? Am I, am I, am I headed in the wrong direction? Should I just go back? Maybe you've asked that about a particular course of studies. Maybe you've asked that about a particular career, vocation. Maybe you've asked that question about a particular relationship. Maybe, and it happens. You've asked that about a marriage. Maybe you've asked yourself that question about your spirituality. You know, disappointment with God is a very real thing. In John chapter 6, Verse 6, we read this, this stunning little revelation. From that time, many of his disciples turned back. It's a thing. It's a thing. There are some, it seems, who would start out following Jesus and get to a certain point along the path and then decide for various reasons, do you know what? I think I've made a mistake. I don't think he's the one. This is not what I've expected. I might as well just turn back. Now, I'd like to pretend that it never happens in the Christian life. We would never see that at this church. I would love to pretend that I've never had a friend who at some point claimed to be a believer and hadn't, during a period of real disillusionment, decided to turn back. I would love to claim that, but I can't. The truth is, disappointment with God is a thing. And as part of our spiritual health check, I wanted to ask the question this morning. How do you make sense of disappointment, particularly disappointment with God, and how do we deal with it? in a positive way that, that doesn't mean actually turning back. I want to center our thoughts on a, on a particular chapter in Mark, Mark chapter 10. This particular chapter is filled with a number of 
a number of little, little events and encounters with Jesus, but they're filled with compassion and tenderness. It starts with the story, and we won't go into this in real death, but I'll just pass over it. You know it. The story of the rich man. And you probably are aware of the story. He, he comes up to Jesus and he, and he says in verse 17, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So his pursuit, this wealthy man, is, listen, I'm doing, I'm doing well in this life, but I'd like to have some reassurance about the next. How do I get into this kingdom of God? What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the thing that is troubling his heart. Essentially, Jesus says to him, after a little bit of dialogue, he says, well, sell everything you have and follow me. This, this was quite a challenge for the, for the man. And, and the, the Bible records that he went away sad. Perhaps the bit that surprises most of us at this point is that, and Jesus then ran after him and said, oh, no, I didn't sell that right, did I? No, he doesn't. The man went away sad. Uh, yet, but that's not the end of the story. We actually don't know what happened. We don't know how those challenging words of Jesus may have affected him. We just don't know that part of the story. But I do believe that it is with some tenderness that Jesus was pinpointing a hole in his understanding about what it meant to be a follower of God. This really throws the disciples somewhat, and, and it exposes really a big hole in their thinking as well. The next portion of this scripture has Peter pondering all of these things. He's just watched this encounter with the rich man. Uh, probably in his understanding, you know, to be wealthy and rich and successful was to be equated with the blessing of God. Obviously, if somebody, you know, a, a, you know, a kind of a, a zealous Jew was blessed and wealthy and so forth, God must be pleased with him. He's blessed that this man, this particular man, would walk away sad and seemingly walk away from the things of God. Troubled Peter. He didn't know really what to, what to make of that. And, and he started really to, to question himself what it meant to be following Jesus. So he throws out this, this question to Jesus, or really a statement. He said, Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you. Jesus, uh, Peter, sorry, here is really just voicing a concern. He's watched the, the rich man walk away, and now that's got him thinking about the blessing of God and the nature of following, following Jesus. And and so in verse, verse 28, he says, We have left everything to follow you, Master. And Jesus uses this opportunity to teach the disciples about a little bit more about the nature of discipleship. He says to them, verse 29, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. 
homes, brothers, sisters, mother, children, and, and fields, Jesus goes on to say. Now, if we just left it there, we might be accused of a little bit of prosperity, prosperity teaching, but Jesus does recall this, this part, this element. He does actually reassure Peter, and it's a lovely reassurance that I know you've left everything. I know that you've, you've left relatives and you've, you've left your homes and you've left your fields and the fields there would be, you know, I guess, uh, uh, kind of indicating your, your livelihood, your way of, of turning a dollar. I know you've left all of that and I want to reassure you, it's, it's not unnoticed. Indeed, you receive a hundred times more. Uh, Bron and I, in terms of homes, this is a promise by Jesus that is quite literal to us. Um, one occasion, I was writing a, a, a newsletter back in the, the days when we worked with a, a mission organization. I was writing a newsletter and we were about to, about to house sit in a new house. And I, I just thought out of interest it would be fun as we're sitting in the lounge room, fun to add up all the different houses that we've ever lived in. And um, uh, Bron didn't really want to play this game. Um, I think her words were, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> and uh, not, to be, not to be put off, I started adding them up and I, I discounted any that was just a, a one or two nights. I mean, that's a holiday. So it had to be over two weeks or more. And I started, I think, oh, wow, let's go way back to when we were married, Bible college, went through Bible college, our first. Anyway, uh, as best as my memory would serve me, I was counting them up and into the, into the tens, into the twenties, into the thirties, uh, our time on the doulos, uh, into the, and some of the times we have to move off the ship into a house, into the thirties, our time in the US, into the forties. I got about halfway through and I was into the fifties. And I said, do you think it would be fair, because I'm growing tired of this game, do you think it would be fair to double it from here on in? Do you, do you think we've possibly stayed in as many houses in this last half as we did the first half? And, and I got a bit of a nod, and uh, I don't want to talk about it. So I estimated that in terms of house sitting and so forth, we had probably stayed in about a hundred or more different houses that God had that God had made available to us over those years. Now, you might feel sorry for us, and Bron in particular, you know, how many houses we had to clean and make it look better than it was when we, when we moved in. And yes, the other side of that is to, to thank the Lord and say, look how many people opened up their homes to allow this family of six to come in and and sleep on, the, sleep on the floor or wherever. Some people gave us, vacated their bedrooms and made it available to us. Other people had a spare house and, and went without rent so that we could be there. The Lord indeed has given us a hundred times as much in terms of the house that, that we may have thought we gave up for him. And in terms of fields, I may have given up a particular field of work, but, but I've never been without a day's work. God has, God has given us plenty to do. Indeed, we feel very, very blessed. But Jesus doesn't stop there and say that you're going to receive a hundred times as much all of these things, relatives, grandparents to your children, because the real grandparents, for some reason or another, can't be there. Anything that you may have given up in this life, Jesus promises, I'll give you a hundred times more than that. And yet... 
There's another little phrase in here. Along with persecutions. Along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. And you might feel a little bit like, well, I don't know. I don't know that I've really been persecuted. Have I? I don't know that I've really suffered for my faith. But, you know, when we think about persecutions here, it literally means to, to put to flight, to, to drive away. That's the intention of persecution. So when we think about persecutions, don't think about the intentions of the party, the particular party that may have, that may have hurt you. Don't think about that. Think about the intentions of the enemy of your soul. Because any pain, any hurt, any brokenness, any difficulty that comes to you in this life, no matter what personal circumstances is behind that, the real agenda here is the enemy of your soul. He designs and uses pain, difficulty, challenge. He designs and uses all of these things in your life to drive you away. That's the purpose of it. And that's what makes it persecutions. It's not the intent of another person, but the intent of the enemy of your soul. Anything that is used to dissuade you from following Jesus with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, that thing is persecution. Anything designed to dissuade you from following Jesus, that is persecution. And just by the way, yes, here in the West, it just might be comfort. The great persecution and deception of the West. And so we are promised, yes, a hundred times whatever it is that we give up for Jesus in this life, along with persecutions. They're going to come our way. We are not protected from these things. And then another reassurance for Peter, another reassurance and in the next life, or the next age, eternal life. hundred times more, whatever you give up for me in this present age, and in the next age, eternal life. The very, very quest of, of that, that rich man. So here is Peter's pondering. He's watched the rich man walk away. He's thinking to himself, ha, huh, bad deal. He got a bit disappointed. What's to stop me from getting disappointed here? Are we too? Are we following the right person? Jesus, we've given up everything for you. A lovely reassurance. Yes, you have, and it will not be forgotten. I know what you've given up for me, and I'm going to give you a hundred times more in this present life, along with persecutions, actually, Peter. And then in the next life, or the next age, eternal, eternal life. It's a lovely, tender moment of teaching there for, for Peter. Essentially, Jesus is saying, the destination, and it's a wonderful reassurance, Peter, the destination is glorious. Keep following me. Look at the destination. It speaks of glory. Keep following, keep following, keep following. Glory is ahead. The destination is glorious, but the path will be messy. 
I can't promise you a smooth, clean, wide, broad, easy, downhill, even flat path. No. It's a glorious destination, but the path can get messy. At some point, the reality is, and many of you have already felt the truth of this, but at some point, every life is touched by brokenness. Life gets messy, doesn't it? It does. The world says of brokenness, just build a bridge and get over your brokenness. Jesus, facing the reality of hurt, pain, brokenness, he says, I want to, I want to build a bridge out of your brokenness. Life will be messy, but trust me, I'll get you through, and it is indeed a glorious destination. Jesus, as if to underscore this point, then goes on in chapter 10, and Mark records it for us. He predicts for yet a third time his death. You're following me. Where is it that I am going? And he tells the disciples, and there's no way to mistake this. We are going up to Jerusalem, verse 33. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise that's the path that I'm taking, and you're following me. Here is Jesus in a very, very tender moment, outlining for the disciples and for Peter, a little confused and a little disillusioned and a little, a little bit wondering, what, where are we going? Where does, this, where does this ultimately lead? And Jesus is tenderly helping them to understand it's a bit of a messy path, Peter, but it will lead to a glorious destination. And then still grappling with this, Mark records for us a story. And again, you know this one. It's James and John, and perhaps you've read it in a particular light, and you've thought, yeah, this is their, this is their slightly obnoxious moment where they're both kind of jockeying for position and, and of course it upsets all the other disciples and, and perhaps you've thought about this and you've thought about it in, in terms of oh the naughty James and John you know how could they have even asked Jesus for this but, but here is the story and I want, to, I want to suggest that there's a whole lot more tenderness on the part of the master than we might have shown for, for James and John Essentially, Jesus is going to help them understand that the promise of glory comes at a cost. There is the promise of glory, but it's going to, it's going to be costly. And this is how this little conversation unfolds, the promise of glory. And in verse 36, very, very boldly, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and says, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Have you ever played that trick as a kid? 
You ever come to your, you know, one of your parents, mum or dad, and said, I want you to say yes to whatever it is I'm going to ask. And, and then, then you've got a promise, and it seals it. No matter what you ask, after all, they are held to that promise. They can't escape from it. Well, Jesus must have seen this coming. Oh. And he says to them, he says, what do you want me to do for you? Isn't that a superb question? I want you to just be still for a moment and imagine Jesus coming to you and listen to him ask this question. What do you want me to do for you? Gee, I wish, wish we had time to share our answers to that. It's a profound question, isn't it? And it sometimes reveals all sorts of things that are really going on in our life. But not only that, our expectations of how Jesus is going to come and meet us. What would you like me to do for you? Well, that's what he asks James and John. And they essentially reply, well, we want to share in your glory. <laughs> Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory, Lord. We want a share of your glory. Now, interestingly, the problem here isn't necessarily even their request for glory. For Jesus has already promised that you can have a share in my glory, you can have a share in my glory now, and, and yes, you will share in my glory eternally. Uh, as for the particular positions on the right and the left, that's, that's kind of not for, for me to give away and it's not for you to ask. But, but the, the problem here is not necessarily wanting to have a share in their glory. The problem is, and Jesus understands this, you can actually... <laughs> in a way that will stun and amaze you and meet every expectation. And you won't have to sit on my right or my left in order to, to enjoy that. A glorious destination is ahead of you. It's absolutely guaranteed. It will amaze you. It will exceed all of your expectations. You don't have to worry about what that's going to look like. But the thing that was concerning Jesus was not that they would or wouldn't share in his glory. Do you understand what this is going to cost you? And clearly he knew at this particular point they did not. They did not. Here are the sons of thunder asking for, for glory and glory they would have. But glory, the promise of glory comes at a cost. And so Jesus says to them specifically, and I, here's where I want you to hear the tenderness of Jesus. And I can only imagine what the look was on his face as he said this, because he knew what this would cost them. One of these guys was going to be the first martyr of the church, Acts chapter 12. One of these guys was going to die by the sword. 
And one of these would outlive all the other apostles. Here were the two brothers with two very different destinies, but it would cost both of them everything that they had and more. So Jesus looks at them and with great tenderness, he asks, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And they answer, we can. (laughs) And Jesus knows that there's a deeper truth to this. In your own strength, you can't. But with my strength, which will come upon you very, very shortly, you will be able to. And so he actually doesn't necessarily disagree with them, which is very, very interesting. Jesus said to them, you will. You will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. He was fully aware of this. We can do it, they say. And in a way that they could not understand, Jesus is essentially saying, yes, you can. And yes, you will. I can only imagine his heart just tearing within him at that moment. Because he knew for these disciples and the others exactly what it is that as witnesses of the resurrection, they would have to go through. Thus, his high priestly prayer in John 17 about the protection of the Father upon them. They were going to need it. (laughs) 21st of March, 2001, my little travel journal, which is a... Different little journal, kind of smaller, that always goes with me in my backpack. I got an entry in there. Peter Capal and I had just, just done the most amazing thing. If we'd been on one of those reality travel TV shows, we would have won, hands down. Late for our flight with our, our pretend do-loss tickets being rejected initially by Korean Airlines... We are held up and eventually they agreed with us with much pleading and about as much schmoozing as you've ever, ever heard me do. We finally persuaded them that it was a real ticket, that this was a real ship and we were really sailing and we needed to get to that port. And so they allowed us onto a plane without a return ticket, sort of something that was a bit of a no-no by their guidelines. And, and flying through Seoul Airport there, we... We um, just saw this incredible queue. I would estimate hundreds, if not a thousand people, trying to. This was back in the back in the day of security concerns, or you know, pretty much um, undressing to go through security. And Peter and I were right at the back, and we thought, we can't make this flight. And I said, Peter, if ever there was a day, if ever there was a moment to be culturally insensitive, today's the day. <laughs> And so we pushed our way to the front of the queue. We said, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, using the very best English we had. And we got to the front and people were, oh, actually, 
incredibly, incredibly nice towards us. And we got through security, and then we thought, we just might make this flight. And then are faced with the same number of people again trying to get through immigration. We thought, you can't push this one. But then we thought, if ever there was a day to be culturally insensitive to customs, today's that day. And so we pushed all the way to the front of customs, and we got through. And we thought, we just might make this. And then we checked our gate, and it was, of course, the furthest gate from where we stood at that moment. But if ever there was a day to sprint through an airport without any dignity, that was the day. And so we did so, arriving and skidding into the lounge room, breathless. We saw that they had already shut the door. We pleaded. We said, please, we have to make this flight. Neither of us were sure why. But anyway, we have to make this flight. And so they did the most remarkable thing. They opened up the door again. And we sat exhausted in our, in our seats and headed, headed off to the Philippines. And still just kind of amazed at the way we got through and high-fiving one another and so forth. I brought out my journal and, and I, was, I was trying to understand Philippians chapter 3. Going to the Philipp- Philippines and studying Philippians had nothing to do with each other, but it felt right, strangely. And I was, I was looking at Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, and I said to Peter, do you reckon you understand what it means to share in the sufferings of Jesus? Peter said, no, I don't think I really do. And I said, no, I don't think I really do. But I'm trying to get my head around it. Because it was important to Paul. And I want to know what does it mean to, to share, to fellowship in his sufferings. And Peter and I, after a long, long discussion, both declared that we didn't know what it was, but we knew it was important. What I didn't realize was that within two years, Peter would marry. In the first few months of their marriage, they would... They would conceive a a young child, but Peter would never actually see that little baby because of a little lump that had grown and become a bit troublesome on his head, which revealed a brain tumor, which was inoperable, and and he went home to be with the Lord after, after a period of sickness. And I look back at that entry, and I think, yep, We didn't know it, but that little discussion, do we know what it means to to share in the sufferings of Jesus, to be persecuted? Do we know what it means? And Peter found out in a very real way, and I guess vicariously I shared in what Peter was experiencing, that persecution will come our way and every single time it is designed, to dissuade you from following Jesus with all of your heart. And that was the test that Peter would face sooner than than I would. Again, on another occasion, in the US this time, I I had a little team when I was based with OMUS. Chip Kirk was on that team and another guy by the name of Dave Nelson and 
we'd gone down to surprise you, actually, but we decided to have our meeting at a local coffee shop. And I drove the boys down to a coffee shop, and, and uh, we, we had our team meeting there, and we were driving back, and we were all involved in mobilization for missions, and just we always shared different things that we were learning or using in our ministries. And I said, yeah, I'm toying with this, this particular illustration about um, the relationship between, you know, coffee and the aroma it gives off and the aroma of Christ and still working it through. And, and so we jumped in and, and then Chip, Chip said, huh. And I listened to his huhs because there's usually something profound coming after that. And he said, huh. Ain't going to get no aroma unless those beans are ground real good. And then he started laughing. He started laughing, I think, whenever he said something funny or something really sad. And he just kept repeating that, going to be ground real good. And I was thinking, stop that, Chip. Ground real good. <laughs> That's enough, Chip. <laughs> But the coffee needs to be ground real good if you want to get a nice aroma. The disciples, James and John, said, we can, we can. And Jesus said, yes, you can, and yes, you will. The path to glory is via the cross. Just a couple of chapters earlier, Mark chapter 8 verse 34, he called a whole crowd to him along with his disciples and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. What is the cost? Jesus outlined it for them. He said, the son of man is going to be mocked. He's going to be spat on. He's going to be flogged and eventually killed. Jesus would, would have to, as he was mocked, lay down his reputation. As he was spat on, he would lay down his dignity. As he was flogged, he would lay down his position. Because you see, when you're being flogged or whipped by another, you are enslaved to them. You're no longer showing your authority. You're no longer showing your power. Whether it was there or hanging from a cross, you're not calling down 10,000 angels to help you. You're laying down your position. And then he would be killed. He would, he would lay down his very life. What is it that the enemy uses to dissuade you from following Jesus? Is it hurts from the past? Disappointment. Is it, the, is it the comfort of the present? Or is it perhaps even a fear of the future? What is it that the enemy uses to persecute you with? Jesus says if you would... If you would be one of my disciples, you must, you must take up your cross and you must follow me. And the enemy 
spends every moment of your life trying to persuade you to put that cross down. It's too hard. It's too heavy. There are better options. How do you know where this is going to go? Sowing doubts into your mind. He's the deceiver. And he wants nothing more than for you to simply make that decision. You're right. This is a heavy cross to bear. This is too much for me. There are other options. There are other voices in my life saying, it doesn't have to be this hard. Lordship surely can't mean everything, submission, or submitting to God everything. No, 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 no. It's misunderstood. There's another brand of Christianity that is much easier. Why don't I just put this cross down now? It's been a long journey. I've done well. I mean, look, people are applauding me. That's enough. That's enough. There we are. Halfway is good. I got halfway. Yay! That is the intended end of persecution. What is it that the enemy uses in your life to persecute you, to persuade you to put down that cross? If the path of Jesus has, or the path that Jesus has you on has caused you to feel just a little bit overwhelmed, then you're probably on the right path. Good on you. You're tracking well. You're doing very, very well. Bron, when she gets to heaven, has questions and one request, at least. In fact, I guess in a perfect world, her request will be met this side of heaven. But she would love to, and you don't mind me sharing this, do you? I forgot to ask permission. <laughs> good. That was a nod, by the way. We're, we're, we're okay. We're okay. We're good. We're good. Oh. She would love to um, ride a horse, a champion horse in dressage. Now, who doesn't know what dressage is? It has nothing to do with clothing a horse, by the way. Okay, couple, a couple. Uh, that's that's not, not, the, the, not the show jumping, not the racing, but it's the, it's the clever, clever sort of almost dancing. We're all, yeah, that's the best way I can explain it. Bron showed me YouTube clips of what I am to pray for. But, <laughs> but, the, but the horse kind of dances. It's amazing. And they do incredible things. They go from side to side and, and all sorts of angles and, and, and to music. Whether, I don't know, is the, the horse just going through its routine and it happens to be synchronized with the music or is it actually doing it to the music? I don't know. But a horse psychologist could tell you. All I know is it actually, even for somebody who's not that 
much into horses because they, they don't have gear sticks. They don't have brakes. They don't have steering wheels. Necessary things for anything that has momentum in my mind. But I'm not into the horses so much. But even I have an appreciation for this. I mean, it is pretty impressive. Bron would love to ride a champion horse in dressage. Now, hopefully in this life, but if that doesn't happen, it's one of her requests when she gets to heaven. In this whole field of dressage, just to give you a, to give you a little bit of an introduction to it, the current world champion um, horse is, does anyone know? 2016, took out the individual gold for Olympics, British, took it out for, for Great Britain, um, Vallegro. Vallegro. The interesting thing about this horse, it was actually sired, its father, uh, sired, that's the daddy, daddy horse. I've been reading up on this. Its, it's father was actually more of a, um, I think, like a common cob, apparently a stockier horse, not with the long legs that you would normally have for a, for a horse in dressage. And, and, um, and then the, uh, the, the mother, am I right? It's not a dame, it's a dam. I just said dam in church. That's the mother of a horse. And, and the mother was um, actually probably would have, all of her pedigree suggested that she should have been a show jumper, just this is a jumping horse. And yet out of these two comes Vallegro. And, and, and this is no ordinary horse. Uh, let, let me read this to you. Vallegro is quite simply a phenomenon. He is the best dressage horse the world has ever seen. This is the one Bron wants to ride. Um, and possibly the best horse ever. With his young rider, he has won Olympic, World and European gold medals, the World Cup twice, and he holds all three world records in dressage. He's the only horse ever to hold all these medals and records at the same time. And not surprisingly, is ranked number one in the world. Vallegro um, uh, competed in the 2012 Olympics and won gold in both the individual and the team events and in the 2016 Olympics in, in Rio just recently surprised everyone by doing it again and taking out individual, individual gold. Amazing horse. And if you're able to, to watch a few clips of what this horse can do, you'll, you can't help but be impressed. But, but here's the thing. Yes, that horse... And there's a little children's book even written about it, Little Horse, Big Dreams. <laughs> yes, that horse has achieved something that, that no other horse has ever achieved. It's an incredible, incredible animal. You might even say it's achieved glory. But before any of that could take place, guess what? It had to be broken. A.W. Tozer once said, it is doubtful that God can use greatly anyone that he has not first broken deeply. The glory or the path to glory is via the cross. It is a glorious destination that awaits us. Absolutely. But brace yourself because the path, the path does get messy. Let me pray.
Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the reassurance. Wonderful reassurance that, that you do, you really do. Intend us for your glorious purposes. And indeed, you have gone ahead. And you are preparing a place for us. Jesus, you said in John chapter 14, in my father's house, there are many, many rooms. A glorious destination. Indeed, in the age to come, eternal life awaits all those who follow Jesus. Absolutely. But Jesus also said, You know the way to follow me. And we know that that way can be messy. We know that way can be tough. We know that way will be filled sometimes with all manner of things to dissuade us from going the whole way and finishing well. So Jesus, on behalf of all of us here, some who know exactly what persecution looks like right now in their life, some who aren't sure but know to heed the warning and to be cautioned that the road can be difficult wherever we're at, we ask this morning, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to stand firm, to stand firm. We would declare we will not put down that cross. It's too precious. You carried it for us. And by your strength, we now carry it for you. Jesus, help us, comfort us, strengthen us. You're enough. You're all we need. Thank you. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.